going to do a little cold open here with, with this podcast. So we're here with uh, uh, with special guest Skip Martin. How you doing, man? Who is, Good uh, to be here. Who is, we're recording from the uh, face-to-face desk setup that I have with Ivan Ocampo, our, our uh, production director. Uh, and you're getting a little window into Ivan's brain here with all the shit that he's got on his desk. Yeah, it's... Um... So we've got a top off of a bottle of Blanton's, I think, or something here. We've got a golf pencil, <laughs> um, a, a, a single dart. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you're going to conduct a whole game with that. A variety of USB keys of different sorts. A lot of knives, a lot of sharp stuff knives, over there. Yeah. Yeah. An empty shell casing. My, my favorite <laughs> item there is that he went to the trouble of framing that letter from Davidoff and <laughs> inviting him to some shit. I don't even know what yeah, And then is. he puts the picture of, you know, the mustached ad of perfume ad on top of that. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. So, uh, yeah, so there you go. Now, now I hope you feel like you know Ivan a little better. I do. I, can, I could probably do a little Mindhunter style right, psychological right. profile <laughs> from... Uh, so uh, yeah, so so like I said, we're here with uh, with Skip Martin. You're listening to the Cigars Not Podcast. I'm Nick Jimenez. Um, for I, I, we sort of intro a lot of these interviews the same way, but uh, you know we've found that a lot of people who come to the podcast maybe have never seen Cigar Snob in print before sure. or maybe don't consume a lot of cigar media. They just read it for the articles. They just read it for the articles, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> they just skip right through that centerfold where we have all the vital information about right. the, the blends and the ratings and shit. Yeah. Uh, so for the for that person who skips right to the middle or who only listens to the podcast, uh, let's tell the people, and we're not going to get too deep into the origin story stuff, but a little bit about uh, who you are, what you do, and, um, and, and RomaCraft just broadly. Yeah, so um, I'm Skip Martin, my partner, Mike Rosales. So that's uh, Aroma is Ro, Ro Rosales Martin. Um, also kind of has kind of double meaning um, from kind of like the Italian imagery and, and everything. So um, Roma Craft, we started making cigars in 2010. So next year's our uh, 10th anniversary. It's crazy how fast it's flown. Happy birthday. Yeah, 10-year ten, ten overnight success. Mm-hmm. Uh we're a pretty small company, and we always we call ourselves a craft cigar company, um, which uh, which has a couple of kind of meanings we try to build into the brand. Which is uh, one, uh, you know, every cigar company, uh, you know, premium cigar company, makes a craft product. I mean, by definition, it's a product made by hand, right? Right. Yeah. Um, or hundreds of hands, and so, um, but in our case. Um, we're not growers. We, we're not farmers. We're not growers. And we actually don't directly do most of our pre-industry, the curing and fermentation. But, so we buy and select tobacco from all over the world. Um, I think now at this point, I think we're buying from eight countries and like 23 different regions yeah. uh, for, for our portfolio. Um, and we make the cigars in our own factory, Nicosueño, which is in Esteli. And I think you guys have visited there. Mm-hmm. Um, we have about 65, 70 employees. We make uh, about 5,000 cigars a day, which works out to about 1.2 million cigars a year, which any handmade product, making a million of something by hand, is, yeah. that's actually uh, a lot. But in comparison, probably the average premium cigar company makes somewhere between uh, 8 and 12 million that would be like at the Padron level or the, um, you know, Aganorsa level. And then you have um, you have companies as big as like Drew Estate that make 60, 70, right. you know, million. They, they make, um, I don't know, if I'm, I think they're up to like 180,000 cigars a day compared to our 5,000 cigars right. a day, yeah, yeah. just to give you some scale. So um, they make more cigars in in a day than we make in two months so um, they just have more people they use essentially the same processes but um so yeah we we have the factory um we import our our cigars ourselves and distribute our cigars out of austin texas and um we sell actually to there's they say there's about 2800 3000 um tobacconist level you know premium cigar retail companies in the in the states um, we sell to about ten percent of them. Okay, 
250, 300 of those, what we think are some of the best stores. Right. Some of the biggest stores, the most popular biggest stores, we don't sell to. Like here in South Florida, you have Smoke In. Right. We don't sell to Smoke In. It's just too too big for us to support. Yeah, to maintain that. Yeah, and then we and then um, but I would say we we do sell to you know if you were to say that here, here's the best 500 sure. retailers in the country, we sell to 250 of those. So in terms of uh, of the portfolio, uh, again for the person who's never come across the brand, sure. Um, how would you characterize like Romacraft's approach to to blending? The what would you say is sort of your your wheelhouse? So I would say we make more fuller-bodied cigars, and, and what I mean by that is um, high-texture cigars. Um, I think a lot of people, especially people who aren't really familiar with the business, even people who smoke every day, they confuse body and strength. Yeah. Um, so if you were to think of it in terms of, um, say, coffee or beer or, or really anything like that, it's easier to, to think of. Beer is a good example because, you know, like the thickness, the viscosity, like a stout would be a heavy body beer and an IPA would be a light body beer generally. But you can have IPAs that are a lot higher ABV than stouts, right? So so strength I think of in terms of kind of like nicotine and, and body I think of in terms of flavor. Right. Yeah, and, the difference between what you're feeling in your palate and what you're feeling in your gut, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, we really specialize in high-texture tobaccos, higher-priming tobaccos, and making really heavy tobacco cigars. But because a lot of that tobacco is fermented for a long time, a lot of the strength is actually attenuated in a way where you don't lose the body. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's easy to make a really strong full-body cigar and it's a little bit harder to make a mild, nuanced, uh, medium, mild cigar. It's a lot more rare in the in the industry, I think, to make really flavorful, full body cigars that aren't overwhelmingly strong. Yeah, has that been? Uh, and that's something that we sort of like a recurring uh, topic on this podcast. Uh, is that what's your experience been communicating that to smokers? Cause I think that there's so many smokers and maybe some of this is the fault of the people whose stuff they're smoking, right? Who will conflate body and power. Well, you know, I spend probably more time trying to explain it to people who review cigars sure, <laughs> than, and people who critique cigars than I do explaining it to consumers because I mean, at the end of the day, when it comes to a consumer, um, at there's no accounting for taste, right? right? Yeah. So what I mean by that is saying, um, you like what you like. Um, I can appreciate as a beer drinker, I can appreciate all of the technical expertise that you have to have to make a decent IPA because there's a lot of not good IPAs out there. Um, but when someone says, hey, here's a dogfish head, you know, 120-minute uh, IPA that has three drops at certain stages, and I'm like, wow, I can definitely appreciate the technical uh, kind of expertise that goes into making that, and as a specimen of an IPA, it is I can sub, you know objectively say this is a great specimen of an IPA, but I don't pref- I don't like the flavor of hoppy beers personally. Right. So um, I think when it comes to when it comes to cigars, as a consumer, it's really about getting a better understanding of what you like, and then steering in that direction. That's why I think of experienced, capable kind of tobacconist is is really a really key part of um, cultivating the 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 knowledge you have to, to actually really appreciate premium cigars. Sure. What was your experience? I mean, again, we don't have to get into the origin story stuff, but once you're uh, deep into cigars, what was your experience of getting to the point where you felt like, okay, this is this is who we are as as blenders this is our identity in cigars well i mean i started out obviously as a consumer i mean i bought my cigar my first cigar in the early 90s um and i moved around and traveled a lot so i visited you know one of my things is i would always go visit whatever the store was in whatever area i was in and i really was one of those people i had one of those books where you would put the labels in it and i wanted sometimes i bought cigars just to get the 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 label i didn't have you know so um, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of cigars I've smoked, and uh, I, I became a, um, I became a, I would say a master cigar smoker, a master cigar consumer. Yeah. 
right? And then um, I had I had the opportunity or kind of backed into actually having ownership of a store. And then, you know, really, hey, I can get cigars at cost. Right. You know, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. Right. And then I got really involved in that as a retailer. Um, I had never been a retailer. Um, retailing itself is its own expertise. So I started learning about that, and I realized how much stuff – in the actual industry of premium cigars, I didn't understand that I learned. And then um, I started getting cigars made for my store and getting more involved in understanding kind of the, because I'm a supply chain, I'm, I'm a nuclear engineer okay. is where I started out. And then I w- did a, a co- economics and finance and then kind of got into um, really supply chain logistics for a global company. And so, um, I was really interested in the supply chain aspect of the cigar business. So when I went down to Nicaragua for the first time to, to work on a project of my own, I thought I knew everything there was to know, and I quickly learned I really didn't understand. Yeah, I feel like going to Esteli is probably an easy way to realize that there's <laughs> shit you don't understand. Look, man, I I was so clueless. you know. But here's the thing. There's a lot of people on that side that know tons about tobacco right. that don't understand the, the actual business of selling cigars. 100%, yeah. And there's people who know how to sell cigars that really don't understand the nature of branding and, and other things. So having been a consumer, uh, a blogger, a retailer, um, a, um, I, I was before the podcast era, but um, you know, a brand owner, a manufacturer – um, I've pretty much done everything but farming, so yeah. I've learned along the way. When you were doing all that smoking that you were doing, was there something that you came across that you thought, this is, whether this is the direction I want to go in or this is an example of, you know, uh, of something I want to accomplish for myself, uh, was there a cigar or more than one cigar that, that comes to mind as, okay, this is where something kind of clicked in my head when I was smoking it? Well, I mean, I think I have... Um, you know, what I, my favorite kind of cigar, but like I said, I smoked all kinds of cigars. And, um, you know, when I very first started smoking, um, the only way, the only thing you really knew about the cigar other than the brand was on the bottom of the box. It said, these cigars are from this country. Right. Right. And so you assumed that if a cigar said it was from the Dominican Republic, that it was a Dominican tobacco. And you assumed that if it was from Honduras, it was all Honduran tobacco. Right. Because the idea of a puro, uh, which is something that's very Cuban uh, influence on the cigar industry, right. was was just the assumption. And then Cigar Aficionado came out, and they started this this thing, which I had never seen before, uh, of saying, here's the wrapper, the binder, and the filler. And uh, I don't even know if I knew before that even what wrapper, binder, filler was. Like, no one ever even thought to ask, what are the three parts of a cigar, you know? Yeah. So... <laughs> As I would save the labels, I would write down, hey, this is the wrapper. At least is what they said it was. Then this is the f- generic kind of region of the filler. And then when I started taking trips down to to Honduras and Nicaragua and the Dominican, you started seeing all the curing process and the fermentation process. They started talking about blending. And then you start talking about Viso Seco Lajero and you start talking about – so really when, when I went down uh, to uh, – when I had a store, kind of the short version of it is, I would go down with consumers from my store and I would go to factories like uh, Camacho's factory. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I would go into the humidor and I knew enough about what their portfolio was that I would see things that weren't, that I hadn't seen before. Like, okay, what is that cigar? I've never seen that shape or size in that wrapper. And they would go, oh, well, that was a private label that I used to do for a store or whatever. Or that was, you know, there's 300 of those. When we start, when we were reblending this brand that, you know, we were, that's how we blended it. But it turned out we couldn't get that wrapper or we went a different direction. It was too strong, too mild. And so I started buying all those cigars. It's like, give me all the orphaned cigars you have. Right. Kind of this whole idea, like Lost and Found ended up being later on. I was doing that in... 2006 you know um so i would buy them all for a dollar and some of them that were really low volume like there's only four or five hundred of them and i really 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 liked them they were eight or ten years old i would sell them for 15 16 18 cigar you know dollars yeah but some of them were just you know what they were and i would sell them for three dollars so i really got into this process of saying 
based on what I'm smoking and based on what I feel about it, this is what I think it's worth. And I really got to explore a lot of different kind of aspects of the the components of cigars in that process. So my very first trip to Nicaragua was uh, we had had a hurricane and my store flooded. And Camacho at the same time had gotten purchased by Davidoff. And so I couldn't get these cigars that were my most popular ones from them anymore. And Maria Martin at the time, who was who who I worked with uh, at a Carib, um, she said, "Hey, I've only got so many of these left." So I said, "Well, send them to me." And then I started working with Mike Rosales and and some people in Nicaragua, including my current partner Esteban Disla, to reblend a specific broadleaf cigar. Okay. And that eventually, that process ended up being Cro-Magnon. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but but the general answer to your question is, um, whenever I find access to a supply of tobacco that historically I've been interested in, like the, the cigar you're smoking is Brazil Modafina. Um, that cigar we make specifically for Germany, uh, the Wonderlust. And uh, that cigar was really inspired by the kinds of tobaccos that we found uh, in this 120-year-old cigar factory in Germany that's owned by our distributor, uh, the Schuster family. Mm-hmm. So... Um, the Cameroon cigar that I gave Jamie Led, um, Cameroon's always been an interesting thing to me. It's not a, a wrapper that you can get really easily in SLE. Um, I started working on that project uh, with Jack Tarano, and then it just kind of turned into its own thing. So really it's about saying, hey, you know, Candela, I'm interested in that. I don't necessarily like Candela cigars. Right, yeah. I want to make a Candela cigar, but I want to make it a cigar that I would smoke every day. Yeah. Right. So that starts a process of going, OK, you know, what do you not like about it? And you start understanding that tobacco a lot more. And then just with all the other accumulated knowledge you have, you, you it's like cooking. Right. Like you mm-hmm. say, OK, ooh, what's this vegetable? I mean, like in Nicaragua, they have vegetables that they don't have in the States, you know, yeah. uh, and you're like, OK, I've never seen that before. <clears throat> what does it taste like? What texture does it have? Oh, wait, I could put that into this dish. That I that I normally use this other version of a of vegetable and so it's tobacco's the same way and then you just go okay well that didn't go well <laughs> and then you back to the drawing board and right. until eventually when you get something and you, that you um, so it's that constant process of exploring and then when you get to a point for at least it is for us and then you get to a point where you go holy cow this is really good I want to smoke this a lot then you start going okay. If we were to produce this, can we get more of this tobacco? Right. What would we price it at? How would we brand it? And that is where kind of it turns into an actual project. We have uh, Cro-Magnon, which is a broadleaf, and Habano, which is Aquitaine. We have Intemperance, which is in three different um, brands. We have the EC, which is Ecuador, Connecticut, uh, 18. We have the Brazil Autopodaca, 21. And we have the Whisker Rebellion 1794, which is uh, Habano. And then we have um, Neanderthal, which is Mexican San Andreas, has like eight different tobaccos. And then we have Wonderlust. And then now we just launched Baca. So, but every cigar, every mm-hmm. single skew we've ever produced sells more, equal or more, every year since we started making it. Okay. So we've never discontinued a single skew in our entire 10-year history. Um, we make a million cigars. We sell a million cigars. Um, pretty much the percentage of, I mean, I could probably make, if you take one Cro-Magnon skew, I could make a million of that skew and sell it. Right. But, but I, I make, you know, 17% is Ecuador, Connecticut, and 11% of that is the 4x46, and that's what we make every year, mm-hmm. and 100% of it sales. Yeah. And it's always on back order and... um but that's just kind of how we run the business. Yeah. Well, and it's all stuff that you can stand behind, right? So it's not like... Yeah. Yeah. And I smoke all of it. So yeah. um, now every now and then, you know, uh, we had to switch over from where we can't... The, the supply chain for San Andreas changed. So we had to stop making it for six months. Or like this year, we produced all of our broadleaf cigars in the first quarter and we're done making them for the year. So um, there are supply chain things that kind of dictate what we make at any given time. And what's available, kind of like seasonality, but yeah. So you talked a bit about uh, you know your first getting to Nicaragua, and there was a hurricane, and uh, talk about uh, sort of in in the broad strokes, 
how you've seen Esteli change over the time that you've been either visiting or, you know, in some cases, you know, long enough stint so you could say you were living there. Um, right. Uh, yeah. I've lived there now for about six years. Yeah. So, so talk about the, the transformation that you've seen and, you know, really what I want to build to is I think a lot of people are curious about what it's like now, because there was that peak where people just were talking about it because of all the, of the political tumble, issues. Yeah, all that yeah. stuff. Well, you know, um, like in this area, I assume, you know, a lot of people think and talk a lot about the history of Cuba. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, the history of Cuba is kind of the origin story for premium cigars. The only reason why they really started making cigars in Nicaragua is because they stopped importing cigars from Cuba, right? Same for the Dominicans, same for Honduras. Um, but Nicaragua, I mean, it's obviously a poor country. It's the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere behind Haiti. Or in front of Haiti. Yeah, which you don't really get a sense for that. I mean, you, you get the sense when you're in Esteli that there's poverty, but you don't get that sense because Esteli has, it's kind of a, it's, it's a little bit different from a lot of the rest of the country. Yeah, I mean, the average, um, the, I don't know what, if you looked it up on Wikipedia, what the average domestic kind of revenue per person or whatever, but but per capita GDP. But I think, you know, on average... If you go out to kind of like the rural areas in Hinotega or Montecalpa where they, you know, people pick coffee, that person probably averages somewhere between $1,500 and $2,000 a year, which is, you know, India-level poverty. Mm -hmm. But it's rural and it's socialist, so it's it's not – it's not like urban poverty. It's it's, it's a, a little bit like in Cuba. You're gonna, it's a, you're gonna it's see a lot more like Cuba elsewhere, but it's a little easier to steal a pig from your own stock that you're <laughs> right, supposed right. to sell what, to the yeah, government. Whatever. The, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, the um, in, in say Managua, you would maybe say the average per capita GDP is probably closer to seven, eight thousand dollars a year, which is more kind of like Manila poverty, mm-hmm. right? But um, in SLE, the the thing about SLE is they have almost full employment. They actually bust people in to work. But and it's almost it's either directly or indirectly 100% tied to the tobacco business. Right. So, you know, you have textile and you have um uh you know, beef, mm-hmm. you know, and, and other kind of uh, agricultural things all over the country, textiles being the biggest one. But in SLE, it's almost completely based on tobacco. Yeah. And uh, and that's either farming, um, producing, uh, pre-industry, uh, uh, manufacturing of premium cigars, yeah, and even all the rest of it. Right, whatever hospitality industry. It's tied there. to some the business from that yeah. business. Yeah, even the grocery store functions because people work in tobacco. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like a it's like a industry town like Pittsburgh was for steel or uh, Detroit was for automobile. Or right. Tampa was at one point for cigars. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So. Um, you know, I would say, you know, we talked to a lot of the old timers who used to take the dirt roads up to Esteli from Managua. But, you know, it's been fairly, you know, consistent in terms of the economy since I've been there. But I think there's a really, there's more of a growing middle class uh, because of all this entrepreneurship that's kind of sprung out of uh, this industry. So the problem is, obviously, they they started having political issues um the the kind of younger student population really wasn't happy with the status quo right. and um so that started about in April of last year it got pretty ugly and then but you know for the most part SLE was fairly insulated from most of that because in SLE if if you have to get up at to go to work at five in the morning and you're in bed by eight you don't have time for that stuff yeah. you know so um but yeah it's the economically I think it's coming along and um, you know, there's still challenge. Still a poor country, so yeah. there's challenges. So we've uh, we've published some things about uh, all that political situation. You know, when it sort of blew up, and and I'll I'll link to it uh, on the show page, which by the way you can find at cigarsnobmag.com/slash/podcast. So go to this episode's uh, page, and there will be links there. Um, but let's just sort of fast forward to now, right? Because it's being talked about less outside less outside of the cigar industry. It's not something you're seeing on the nightly news or anything. Um, right. What's what is it like going to Estelite today? Um, I think it's the same as it has been. You know, you wouldn't know. You know, you get to the airport, you get a driver, or you drive yourself three hours north, 
and you go to Esteli, you go, it feels probably the same as, as any, you would never know. Um, I mean, pretty much what they started doing is just killing or putting in jail anybody that even had a hint of any kind of a yeah. protest. So um, people just stopped protesting. Um, I mean, they're... The whole situation has caused a, a significant economic problem in the country. Um, so the number of flights were cut down by half. So now you can't fly in or out as much as you used to. Um, you have to fly in, in or out on certain days. Um, the uh, tourism industry has been kind of wiped out. People are nervous about coming back. Not really with no reason because it's completely safe. Um but, you know, in general, other than the fact that, you know, there's some things that the grocery store can't keep in stock or there's just basic things. But, you know, if just coming there, if you were to come there, right. you wouldn't know. In fact, um, you know, during – because of all these problems, they stopped doing the Nicaraguan Cigar Festival, mm-hmm. uh, Puro Sabor. Uh, they didn't have it last year. Right. But they announced this year that they're they're doing it in January of 2020. So it's normalized enough, at least, where people feel comfortable bringing – Tourists back to Esteli. All right, and so speaking of that Puro Sabor festival, um, you know, like you said, there was that there was that lull. Uh, talk a bit about what that festival is, what that's like, what the experience is for the person who's never been and would maybe consider going to Esteli for the festival. Yeah, so um, Honduras, Dominican, Nicaragua, and Cuba all have have some form of this festival. The Habanos Festival is probably the biggest, grandest of all of them uh, in Havana. Um, Probably the second most pro, uh, kind of prom, no, known one is Pro Cigar in the Dominican. And those have been pretty well established. Um, Honduras has had a couple of uh, tries at um, Humo Jaguar or whatever they called it. It was basically the Honduran Cigar Festival. Um, that's kind of gone away. Nicaragua, I think we've done it... I went to the second year back in 2010, maybe 11, and so we've had, I think, seven, six or seven or eight of them, um, and they've actually come a long way. Um, essentially, what it is is you fly into Managua, you have some type of reception event in Managua. Um, I think they incorporate, have in the past incorporated a trip to Granada, a dinner there, some tour of, of Granada. Um, then you make your way up to Esteli, and every night or every lunch and, and night, there's some kind of get-together meal. But in between, you, what you're doing is you're touring farms, you're touring the, the pre-industry, you're touring the factories, and basically just getting a sense of of how cigars are made in that region. Um, if you've never been on a trip, it's a great kind of first one to go on yeah because it, there's a lot of kind of so, social things that are going on and but but for the most part you get this general overview of of all the processes and you get to see some of the places where it happens um and then i would say maybe you know going on a a factory specific trip like with perdomo or with camacho or with davidoff that that would be like the next level thing you might want to do yeah yeah, we, we've we've talked about this at least a couple times on the podcast, but uh, Andy, our art director, only recently became a, a U.S. citizen, so he's got his passport, and we've done a couple of trips internationally. Uh, so even though he'd been here for something like six, seven years by then, uh, it wasn't until we went to the Dominican uh, last year, I think, that uh, that he had actually toured cigar factories. And you know, I'm just sort of throwing this in there you know, for the benefit of the person listening. But his feedback was, you know, he grew up in Havana, he'd been around cigars, he you know, had been working here and gone to cigar events, but it wasn't until he went through, I think the first cigar factory we toured was the the, the Reyes factory. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you can't see this process start to finish and not fall in love with cigars. Yeah, yeah. well, and, you, and, and no matter how long you've been smoking, you can't really appreciate right. what, you know, that's the thing with uh, what um, the Newman family is really doing a lot in Tampa, and I think they're about to make a significant investment in their 100-year-old building there where... You know, bringing these people who are supposed to regulate and legislate our industry in and saying, look, this is how a cigar is made. You know, we literally take these leaves off this plant. It goes through all these processes, natural processes. Then you, they take these leaves, put them somehow together in in this tube, and then, you know, you age it. And the, the, even things like how the boxes are made or if you've gone to cigar rings in the Dominican, just 
the amount of work that goes in, the old school printing styles that go into making. I mean, there's only three, four printing companies in the world that make cigar labels. Yeah. Right? It's not a huge industry, but it's a very specialized thing or some of the kind of things that they do for boxes, like the cliche process. They do that on a... A hundred-year-old machine, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> that they have to, you know, manufacture. Yeah, even that part of the process when you're at one of these box factories, pretty cool to see. Yeah, exactly. And so everything about it is just so old, traditional processes. Yeah. And that's where I think when you say you fall in love with it, is you, there's this nostalgia and tradition about it that you go, wow. I mean, there's really nothing in the world made that way anymore. Right. Yeah. And there's the the, the craftsmanship. Yeah. Of it, you know, that the risk yeah. of getting too cliche with the craft thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but um, all right. So then, another consumer experience that we talked about a little bit before we turned the mics on was uh, I'm still getting used to saying PCA. Uh, next year's PCA, which was the IPCPR, uh, and before that show, was the RTDA, and before that was the yeah. RTDA, uh, will have at least the plan for now is right that, that it's supposed to have a consumer day up front. Uh, we've asked a few people their thoughts on that. What are what are yours? What was your reaction when you heard about that? Well, the whole thing hasn't been handled very well from a right. <laughs> well, which if you've been around the cigar business for very long, you know, it's par for the course. Yeah, it is. It's <laughs> there's no um I don't know any group of people who are so strong-willed and opinionated who try to get anything accomplished together. I mean, the Nicaraguan Cigar Festival is 20 different companies that are in this Chamber of Commerce basically in, in Esteli, and we're one of the members and the, the way we basically participate is just saying, yeah, that sounds good to me because <laughs> there's right. no there's no other way to do it. Yeah. So, um, you know, my first tr- trade show was RTDA in Nashville, like in 97, 98. I got I came there as a consumer, as a guest of a of a publisher, actually, a guy that published a cigar magazine in Chicago. And, you know, I always say it's like, you know. The first time, you know, like I imagine if you're if you're a comic book guy, the first time you walk onto the floor at Comic-Con is, right. you know, it's like and there's this, you know, choir of angels that hum. Right, and, yeah. You know, that's the way it feels. You walk and you see all these signs and then over here you got, you know, Orlando Padron and over here you got Mr. Fuente and then over here you got Sal Fontana on his little scooter. And, uh, sell yourself, you're somebody Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So, I mean, it's I don't even think of myself as one of those guys, really. But, um, but you're, yeah. You're someone's Hawkeye. Yeah, yeah, more <laughs> like it. So, yeah, so, you know, for me, I absolutely believe that the success of our industry is tied to the strength of the culture around our industry. Yeah. I mean, I think your whole publication is really not a publication about a commodity product. It's a publication about the culture. Right. And so... Bringing consumers into that process has has the side benefit of improving the cultural aspect, but at the end of the day, look, there has to the, the the industry trade show really is a an event where people get together to do business, and it's as much about strengthening the culture between cigar makers in the stores, and when you introduce kind of like you know consumers into that, it disrupts the there's a disturbance in the force, right? Yep. So um, I don't know. It's going to be tough to pull off, and yep. and I'll see I'll see how they do that. I hope I hope it is successful. Um, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, well, there's a lot of we'll see out there. <laughs> uh, so I mean, at the end of the day, I'll, I want to say yeah, this. Sure. At the end of the day, our biggest kind of risk as an industry is the regulatory environment, and our biggest kind of offensive weapon in the regulatory battle is the IPCPR. As a consumer, as a cigar maker, as a retailer, your biggest offensive weapon or defensive weapon is the IPCPR. And that machine takes money to run. And at the end of the day, the consumer day, no matter what you think about it, I think it could strengthen the culture. But more importantly, if it can generate money for that regulatory battle, that's critical. Yeah. Kind of along those lines, setting aside the show and whether there ought to be a consumer day or whether it's being done right or any of that, 
much more broadly, is there something that you wish you saw the industry, whether uh, whether that means consumers or tobacconists or, or uh, manufacturers, is there something you wish you saw uh, people doing differently or putting more effort into? Toward that end of, of beating back regulation, or yeah, uh, in, torn, in terms of regulation, um, well, I mean, Frank and I, Frank Herrera and I, have been talking about this all week. I mean, that's why I'm here in Miami. Um, you know, I when I got into the business in 2010, it was three years after the Tobacco Control Act was passed. Um, I had been a retailer, so I was familiar with the the march of non anti-smoking and age and those other things. So I knew I was getting into an industry that was going to be regulated. There was no naive – I mean, it was coming. Everybody knew it. The fact that it took six more years for them to actually give us a deeming regulation was surprising. But as soon as they gave us the deeming regulation, my first response was, okay, we're either going to all die together or we're going we're gonna to work together or we're going to die together, right? We're going to yeah. sink or swim. So we all got to get together, and we've got to figure out immediately how we want the regulations to work with us. And and instead, we spent, as an industry, we spent three years talking about how we should be exempt and the regulations aren't fair. It's like, sure. well, you just wasted three years on that bullshit. Now you've got to actually deal with the fact that you are regulated, and we've got to try to do it in a way that allows us to continue doing business. And... I think what you started to see in the last four, five, six months is people coming to that realization that nobody's coming in. Marco Rubio is not going to ride in on a white horse and, and exempt the premium cigar industry. Um, there's just too many There's too many people who make cigars who don't want that to happen. Right. Although, so, in fairness, there hasn't really been an effort to raise money to buy him that white horse. Um, if, we, if we presented Marco Rubio with a white horse, we don't know that he wouldn't get on that horse. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know. It'd this... be a good photo op at the very least. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's what I do know is that, you know, there there's two parties. Regardless yeah. of how you feel about the two parties, one party you have almost no chance of getting any kind of regulatory relief because they want to end the business as it, you know. Right. I mean, we, we want to legalize marijuana and demonize um, tobacco. That's just the way it is. Yeah. On the on the left, and then on the right, really, there's they're really just interested in what the big companies want. So right. um, we're kind of stuck in the middle with no champion. Although Marco Rubio at least wants to understand about our business and has articulated very well a lot of the things that we've been trying to communicate, and we've come a long way in the three years in terms of just t- teaching people about premium cigars. It's not just the fat, rich, white guy in the back rooms, you know, making deals like Boss Tweed. It's sure. It's the plumber, mechanic, you know, um, bank teller, you know, um, call center worker. You know, that's it's the average guy that smokes 85% of the cigars. Yeah, and that's something that I think people don't, even here, don't quite appreciate about, maybe it's not that they don't appreciate it about American cigar culture, but they don't appreciate how different American cigar culture is in that way from cigar culture just about anywhere else in the world. Oh, yeah. I mean, Miami is a, a bubble for sure. Well, even the U.S., right? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I like about being in um, Austin is I'm not in the the Miami kind of, you know, um, whatever you call it. Sure. But, um, I mean, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, and, and I've never read about this in your magazine, but there's a dynamic happening. It's probably the most exciting cultural cigar cultural thing that's happening is there's this dynamic of of black uh, culture kind of crossing over into cigar culture. So what I mean by that is you have like uh, uh, these fraternal organizations and you have um, just groups of guys that coalesce around the cigar culture um from from the black community right and it's probably i mean you go into one of these stores where this is happening and you're like holy cow this is the most dynamic exciting um you know and and it's kind of reminds me of the way things were kind of back in the mid 90s yeah and you know that's to me a lot more exciting than sitting in a room of old white guys waiting to die bitching about watching fox news or golf and you know which is part of the culture too. <laughs> sure, yeah, for sure. And when you, when you say that, because uh, I, I think I've seen some of what you're talking about. So, for example, there's a, um, I guess you could call. Well, it here in Miami, they have Black Cigar Miami. 
Okay, um, so you're talking about like ex- explicitly black organizations. Well, I mean, like in New Orleans, or is I don't think they exclude me thing? from it, but it is sure, sure. it is more it is more explicitly or implicitly it is really trying to get a, a different yeah. kind of segment of people into the culture. Yeah. And they've created their own subculture within the culture. Yeah. So another thing that we were talking about before uh, before the mics came on um, was the Wayfair case and how that affects the consumer experience. Talk a little bit about that because I think that's an interesting thing for smokers to kind of have in the back of their minds. It's a, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of detail there and a lot of... Yeah, and it's an evolving thing. I yeah. think, you know, so one of the things that's happened since the 90s is... Um, cigars have come out of kind of like the convenience store, you know, package store, press store, um, into its own kind of brick and mortar culture. And a lot of the culture is built up around those brick and mortars. And then slowly over time, mainly because of the difference, the variances in different states of tobacco taxes, um, online companies have, have really grown. So you have cigars international, you have JR, you have, uh, Neptune, uh, Atlantic, you have a lot of big online companies. Corona, Smoke In probably ships a lot all over the country. Um, so that's become, I don't know if most people realize, that's probably seven out of every ten premium cigars sold are sold through some kind of mail order. And, what you know, the PACT Act or the TA, uh, TCA, uh, premium cigars were specifically exempt from the rules that prevented things like cigarettes or roll your own going across state lines. The United States Postal Service will still deliver premium cigars, but they won't deliver any other tobacco product. Um, but part of that that was dependent on the fact, just like all of online versus brick and mortar, was that you didn't have to pay sales tax and you didn't have to pay uh, uh, the local tobacco tax because mm-hmm. it was wherever the sale occurred. Right. And that's really how the premium cigar business has grown up in things like in places like Florida. New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, where they don't have any kind of tax. Right. Um, but the Wayfair case changes that because what, what the Wayfair case basically says is that companies now, our states have the right to require big online companies to collect sales tax specifically from online companies. And companies like Amazon and these other big companies are so big now that they already have created a nexus in all these different states. So they're like, yeah, sure. Right. You know, we already ha- we're already – so big, yeah. uh, we already paying taxes in so many states. You know, put it on us. We it don't care. It wasn't that long ago that we weren't paying taxes on Amazon for purchases that were right. in Florida. Right, but because they have distribution centers now in Florida, right. they, you know. So now Maryland and a couple of other states have said, well, if we can, cl- if you, if we can require you to collect sales tax for us, we can also require you to collect tobacco tax. So this is going to be a real big dynamic change in the in the industry because, in one way, it's going. It's an opportunity for people to kind of have a resurgence in brick and mortar to the extent that there's X amount of demand in in a state and 70 percent of those the business is being done. You know, even in Texas, if if 60 percent or 50 percent of the sales are being done from Pennsylvania or from Florida, then it and, and people can't do that anymore or don't do that anymore then there's a more opportunity to build more cigar stores, right. which uh, which hasn't been happening in the last decade or so. So um, we'll see. It's going to be a big change, and yeah. we'll see how it affects the the industry in general. For sure. I kind of – I've always been one of the people that feels like, especially as you're getting into smoking cigars, there's no substitute for having a really good uh, tobacconist to kind of, kind of help guide you. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, so in that sense, it may do a lot to help our culture, but we'll see. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where kind of like wine, uh, it's one of the product categories that's almost most intimidating to get into as a as a right. first time. But I think more so than any of those product cigars are the place where I usually people will come to me. Oh, what should I get? Just don't go to whatever the reputable store is, and they will do a decent job of right of getting um, through the human. We product. actually did a an internet show with a, a thing, a, a web series called modern rogue. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's a YouTube okay. thing, but if you go to YouTube and you, and you search modern rogue, R O G U E, and you go to, there's two of them. One of them is called understanding cigars. And one of them is called, you know, basically how to smoke a cigar, how to light and cut and whatever. But they're two kind of 15, you know, 15, 45 minute kind of, um, videos. And it, and let me tell you, I mean, I think we they did a really good job of of us 
explaining basics. You know, once you get done with these two kinds of episodes, you should be comfortable to walk into a cigar store and start the process of learning all the things you need to learn. For sure. So what um, kind of shifting gears here pretty hard? Uh, What percentage of a given year are you in Austin? So I'm, I probably spend about 65, 70%, let's say eight, nine months out of the year um, in, in Nicaragua. I have a house there. Um, I probably every five or six weeks spend a week or so in Austin. Sorry, I'm going to, where's that, uh, that gun lighter we had here a second ago? Oh, there it is. Fucking Frank. Um, And then, but even when I come to the States, I usually plan trips within the States around my trip here. So if I'm going to spend a week in Austin, uh, this six week period, I'll do a few days in Miami, and then I, I'm, do, I'm going to Colorado at the end of the week, and then I'll yep. do my week in Austin. So there's a lot of travel involved in this business. I, my partner Mike does most of that, but yeah. Well, and so the reason I was asking was that I'm a big fan of Austin. When you're there, is there something that you're like, okay, I got to make sure that I get my fix? Yeah, I mean, coming to our headquarters is is probably. Um, if your cigar guy is one of the best experiences, you know, you send a note to us, let us know you're going to be in town. And, um, you know, even though Miami is kind of the center of the cigar universe, but it's not as great as like a cigar destination. Yeah. I would say our headquarters is a cigar destination. And then, you know, you wrap some barbecue and some Tex-Mex and, you know, maybe a minor league baseball game or going to a couple of live music things. You could definitely make a weekend out of it. So there's a lot of barbecue. You have like a top three. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in Austin, yeah, yeah, yeah. so the granddaddy kind of church of barbecue is Louis Mueller's and Taylor, mm-hmm. um, the most popular kind of hipster, um, famous one is Franklin's. If you want to stand in line for three hours, I think um, I've been there and I've somehow managed <laughs> to avoid a line. So Aaron Franklin trained under Louis Mueller. Okay. And then, um, Lance Kirkpatrick, uh, is the, the pit master at a place called Styles Switch. He also trained under Louis Mueller, and so. Uh, but there's, there, there's really never a line there, and they're open normal hours. So you don't yeah. have to go at like eight in the morning. Very cool f- for yeah. five pounds of barbecue. <laughs> right. My, uh, I think my favorite experience in Austin. Have you done a Jenny's? I think it's Jenny's Little Longhorn Saloon. Yeah, yeah, I've, yeah. For chicken shit bingo. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. That's great. <laughs> I've actually been dying to like build out my own little chicken shit bingo table for my backyard because if. Miami's not a great cigar destination, yeah. But we have fucking chickens everywhere. Yeah, I so. mean the problem is you know some Santeria right. Yeah, person's gonna careful who you take it from. Yeah. <laughs> You're gonna be chicken shit bingo sacrifice. You know when I was in elementary school, um, uh, there people people hear that and they think it's like an exit, but it, the Santeria is happening all over the place. And I remember being a kid, uh, the elementary school I went to, the neighbors were always complaining as they do when they're living right up against a school. Uh, about noise and shit and on more than one occasion i remember finding like various animal heads in <laughs> attempts to curse the elementary school <laughs> throwing it over yeah. here you go here's a yeah. here's a chicken or a goat or whatever yeah. <laughs> um cool yeah and then finally uh rocky mountain cigar festival which we haven't got yeah to. so i'm heading there um at the end of this week uh it's a big uh it's probably one of the biggest one of the biggest multi-vendor kind of cigar events in the country um but definitely west of the west of the mississippi it's probably the biggest of the year Mm -hmm. um this is my first year there Mm. so um i'm excited for that yeah yeah do you spend a lot of time in colorado no colorado's not a big cigar state i mean really this is the only customer smoker friendly right yeah you know, in Colorado, the taxes are so high, the regulatory environment. I mean, if you want to smoke weed, right, that's your state. <laughs> but uh, if you want to smoke tobacco, you're basically uh, yeah. shit out of luck. Right. Cool. Yeah, so um, let's do shameless plugging things. Okay. So where should people go to follow you and Romacraft and all that stuff and maybe okay. follow, your, follow your Rocky Mountain time. Yeah, so if you want to know where to buy our cigars, our website, romacrafttobacco.com. Uh, has a retailer map. It's one of the only things on the website. So it's where to find, where to buy our cigars. Um, because most of our interactions are kind of our engagement in social media. So we have a Romacraft Tobacco uh, Instagram page, but um, really I, I'm on Instagram as uh, Chief Hava, H A V A. And uh, Mike, my partner, is Smoke Roma. 
everyone on our team has a, has their own page on Instagram, and then we have our Facebook, of course. Uh, we have a group on Facebook now called uh, Weasel Team Six. Okay. The elite team of weasels. What, what do elite weasels do? Um, you know, it's like uh, it, it's like a you know, basically, I, I walk in here with cigars, and all of a sudden, everybody here has one. Right. That's weasel. <laughs> you know, if, if if you're an elite weasel, <laughs> yeah. Are you an elite weasel, Frank? Well, an elite weasel is able to get a cigar from you yeah. and make you feel good about the fact that I'm smoking it. Got it. There yeah. you go. That's that's my <laughs> level of weasel. It's like, hey, Skip, could you please smoke the cigar and tell me what you think? It's like, of go. course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good stuff. But Cigar Snob, I would say, is staffed by elite weasels. Oh, man. That's I mean, you and that. Eric and Jamaled, you guys are, you guys and uh, Thor and his mom, you guys are on a whole other level of weasel. Oh, yeah. Oh, and Thor, and his, they're, they're good people. Yeah. Always nice All good people, them. yeah. Yeah. I didn't even know I was an elite weasel. I think I'm going to be... Making, I'm, I'm going to head straight to a tattoo shop to get my Elite <laughs> Weasel tattoo tomorrow. Uh, cool. All right. So, um, yeah, with that, we'll we'll wrap it up. Uh, this has been the Cigar Snob Podcast. I'm Nick Jimenez. I'm here with Skip Martin of Romacraft, the Ma in Roma. Um, you can find us at cigarsnobmag.com slash podcast for all the past episodes. Go to this episode's page for uh, links to all the stuff. I found that Modern Rogue uh, stuff that you were talking about, so we'll make sure to drop that in there, along with uh, links to all the things. Um, subscribe to our print magazine. Uh, we, we do a thing in print. Uh, it's 18 <laughs> bucks for the year. That's six issues. Um, and then The price uh, of one of Steve Saka's cigars. The price of, for the price <laughs> of a Steve Saka's Or three Romacraft cigars. <laughs> or three Romacraft cigars. You can get six this is, this is obviously the best value in the cigar world. Six issues of Cigar Snob Magazine for $18. Uh, you can't smoke them, but you can try, and if you do, send us a video. All right, that's it. Thanks. Thanks, Skip. Yeah, bro. Right.